it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Very pleased and honored and humbled to have all of you here with me every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on the radio program across our great affiliates. Many ways to listen live, streaming on the app, on Fox Nation, through odyssey.com, and you've got many options. And if you can't listen live between those hours, there's a podcast that is always on demand. It is always free of charge at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, we are active. Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at GuyBensonShow. We're actually closing in on 10,000 Twitter followers on the official show account run by Quiet Wyatt. Maybe you can make his day, make his week, and get us closer to 10,000. And I uh, made some progress on my personal account as well, at Guy P. Benson. So maybe throw a follow to at Guy Benson Show and at Guy P. Benson, Twitter and Instagram for both of those platforms. Here's the lineup today on the radio program as we are back from the border, back in D.C. for a couple days, Mark Thiessen. Former presidential speechwriter, Fox News contributor, Washington Post columnist. He is going to be here later this hour talking Ukraine and Russia and also Republican politics. Some very interesting primaries underway right now. We'll talk to Mark about those. Coming up in the next hour, Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks, Triple M. She is on the committee that is grilling the DHS secretary today about the border. We have some sound coming up here in just a moment on that. I'd like to ask Congresswoman Miller Meeks from Iowa, a Republican, about that, but also some COVID-related policy and messaging from the Biden administration. That's up in our middle hour. And in our final hour today, the happy hour is what we call it, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Molly Hemingway, our colleague and friend here, she is going to drop by for a discussion of Elon Musk, Twitter, uh, the breakdown that we're seeing from some people over the Twitter developments. I am looking forward to that conversation. But as I mentioned, Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the DHS secretary under this president, he's on Capitol Hill today, and I was flying from Texas back to D.C. this morning. So I got up early, took the first flight out, and when I landed, I powered my phone back up and I got a text message on our show chain, and there were just clips coming in of Mayorkas and what he's saying on Capitol Hill about the border crisis. And having just been down there, as you all know, Monday and Tuesday, actually Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, but on the air the last two days from Del Rio and then McAllen, having seen a lot from the ground, from the air, and from on the river, having talked to dozens 
of people on the ground, some of the things being asserted by the man in charge of the border, I mean, set aside the vice president and her border czar status, which I think is just a joke, the Secretary of Homeland Security is spinning to the point, I would say, of lying. Some of this stuff is just insulting that he said. And look, I'm going to tell you this. I was not planning on opening the show again on border stuff because I think we sort of had our fill over the last two days. Very heavy emphasis. There is a sense of urgency. There should be down there. Things are getting worse. There was the drowning tragedy. We were down there. I think it was very appropriate to shine the spotlight as directly in a sustained way on this issue as we did over the last two days. But I was like, you know, let's change it up today here on Wednesday. We'll open with something new. But that all changed when I started watching these clips from Mayorkas. For example, let's just start with this one. Cut 25, the excuses, and then the assertion. Listen. We inherited a broken and dismantled system that is already under strain. It is not built to manage the current levels and types of migratory flows. Only Congress can fix this. Yet, we have effectively managed an unprecedented number of non-citizens seeking to enter the United States. We have effectively managed what's happening down there. That's his claim. We, the Biden administration, have, quote, effectively managed this situation. Let me tell you this. And this is not conjecture. This is not me making an assumption. This is a fact. The men and women tasked with protecting the border, whether at the federal level with Border Patrol or at the state level with Texas DPS and the National Guard, the men and women whose job it is to deal with this unprecedented crisis, this crush, and by the way, the crisis is unprecedented, to use his word, because of the policies that this administration has implemented, and it's about to get worse if Title 42 goes away as planned, those officials at the border will seethe in anger over the claim by this administration that the management of the border crisis at hand has been effective. It has been the opposite of effective. It has been a disaster The crisis has gotten worse, and it has all been seemingly by design. And for this guy to get up under oath before Congress and say, oh, yeah, look, we inherited. That's the second word out of the gate in that soundbite. We inherited a broken, dismantled system already under strain. That's nonsense unto itself. Did they inherit a perfect system on immigration? Of course not. There's no such thing as a perfect immigration system. What they inherited, though, from the Trump administration was a hell of a lot better than what we see right now. There were some really problematic flare-ups with the unaccompanied minors during the Trump administration, as we had seen, by the way, previously under Obama. Then the big spike, what was it, in 2018 or 2019, and then the Trump people decided to take this on head-on. It wasn't just build the wall, which is part of it, and I think it has to be indispensably part of a solution. Barriers, walls, fences, and serious ones, not little rinky-dink things. 
That has to be part of it for all sorts of different reasons. We talked about that yesterday with one of the officials on the air. But there were other policies put in place. Remain in Mexico, which was really enforced, not in the fake way that Biden's enforcing it, only after he was forced to by the courts, real commitment to remain in Mexico. That was a huge one. The safe third nation agreements with some of the Northern Triangle countries, that was another one. The combating and pushing back against sort of this catch and release mentality, all of those changes under Trump were improvements. And look, I was not just like, you know, a pom-poms out cheerleader for everything Trump did on immigration. The family separation thing I thought was counterproductive and wrong. And I said so on the air and in writing. But a lot of the other stuff, especially subsequent to that, worked. It was successful. It was smart. They made the changes, and the problem didn't go away. It will never go away. There will always be people who want to come to this country illegally. You have to make it actually effective to try to mitigate that problem, and that's precisely what happened in the last administration. What the new administration, Biden and Harris and company, what they inherited, despite this dissembling nonsense from Mayorkas, was at least something of a functional system. And all they had to do, and Trump has made this point himself, it's one of his better points on this. Trump has said this, all Biden had to do at the border and on immigration was nothing. And this would not be a crisis, this would not be a huge headache, this would not have Democrats chewing their fingernails down to the nub, they're so nervous about how bad this is going to be in the election. None of this would be happening if not for these changes that they made voluntarily at the behest of their activists that encouraged and incentivized and, in fact, actively aided and abetted illegal immigration. For him to go up, Mayorkas, on Capitol Hill, put his hand on the Bible, get sworn in, and say they inherited this mess, but they've been effectively managing it, is gaslighting. It is the opposite of reality. It's like, you know, night is day, up is down, West is east. It's wild that he would say that. It is not true. No one believes it to be true. A lot of the Democrats in that hearing definitely know it's not true, whether they'll say it or not. And more of them are saying it because they're worried about losing. And as I said before, the men and women that I just spent the last three days with, they are personally affected by how untrue that statement is. I almost wish I was down there for one more day to see their faces when they watch that clip from Mayorkas. What an insult to them. Just a spit right in their face. By the way, we talked about the wall and how walls actually do work. Here was under questioning Mayorkas admitting how much money American taxpayers paid not to build the wall, to discontinue the wall building because of this political agenda to be the opposite of Trump, because that's the reactionary tribal thing to do. Here he was, cut 24, Secretary Mayorkas earlier. The wall projects, um, the majority of them, rest in the jurisdiction of the Army Corps of Engineer. Uh, those that we ourselves uh, uh, control, uh, I believe that the cost of discontinuing them is approximately $72 million. And I will follow up with you to ensure the accuracy of my statement uh, this morning. 
So we spent $72 million to stop building the wall, a wall that every law enforcement official I spoke with in the last three days said is at least somewhat helpful, if not extremely helpful, when it comes to enforcing the border. Progress was being made. Border Patrol and others had been begging for more barrier because it works where it exists and it funnels the entry elsewhere for the most part so those enforcement efforts can be targeted in a more efficient way. Progress was being made on that, and then Biden came in and spent $72 million of our money, admitted by Mayorkas, to stop building the wall. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Almost as crazy as him saying that this is effective management. He was asked this question, Mayorkas was, about operational control of the border in this exchange earlier. Same hearing, cut 37. Do you believe frontline agents and officers who consistently say that they are poised to lose operational control or some of some or all of America's southern border once Title 42 is lifted? Ranking Member Katko, it is our responsibility to maintain operational control of the border. That is what our personnel are dedicated to doing. That is what the personnel of throughout the department and I as a secretary are dedicated to doing, and we will not lose operational control of the border. We will not lose operational control of the border. It's a totally empty promise, words, because the actions matter a lot more, and we can see what those actions are and continue to be. But that just reminded me of the conversation we had two weeks ago on this show. Thomas Homan, former acting ICE director, who has connections all along the border at every level of government. He has much more knowledge than I do. Like I'm not some expert. I was, oh, I was there for three days. Now I know everything. No. I know more. I understand more. Homan understands more about this than virtually anyone in the country because he's lived it. It's been his whole career. Here's what he told us on this show. Mayorkas said we're not going to lose operational control of the border. Homan, talking to his sources down there in Cut 36, told us this. The United States of America has lost operational control of our southern border. We can't control what's coming in. We're overwhelmed. One, one chief patrol agent said we're at a broken arrow status before they lift Title 42. So Mayorkas says we will not lose operational control. Homan says we already have. And a little bit earlier in that interview, he said that was based on multiple local, like, you know, regional chiefs from Border Patrol that he spoke to. And I just have to ask you this. Who do you believe? If you had to choose between these two men on credibility on this issue, do you choose the guy who changed his story on the whipping scandal to echo the fake smear, who says that the border is being effectively managed right now, even though they inherited this problem from Trump? The same guy who apparently seems pleased that we spent $72 million to not build the wall to discontinue that project? The guy who has said under oath repeatedly for the last two years that the border is secure? That the border is secure. That's what he says in testimony over and over again. Do you believe him? Or do you believe the people whose job it is to secure the border who say it's absolutely not, despite their actual best efforts, because of a political program being shoved down their throats from the very top in Washington, D.C.? I know who I believe. And I think the evidence makes the answer to that question very clear. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back from the border here. Happy to be home. Much more to get to on the show here today. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back.
The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you want to get rid of inflation, the only way to do it is to um, undo a lot of the Trump tax cuts and raise rates. No Republican is ever going to do that. So the only way to get rid of inflation is through reconciliation. I'm Guy Benson. That's Chuck Schumer. Is he trying to help the Republicans? Is that like like a GOP ad cut by like an animatronic Chuck Schumer there? What is he doing? Inflation is the number one issue. It's crushing everyone. And he says the only way to get rid of inflation in his, in his mind is to raise taxes. Everything costs more for Americans, so let's have their tax bill cost more. That's the Schumer Democrats' plan. The only way to get rid of inflation is to undo the Trump tax cuts and raise taxes. That's what he said. Trump tax cuts cut taxes across the board, across all income groups. It spurred growth and expansion and wages going up in meaningful ways, finally. And here with Americans hurting, with inflation run amok and running out of control, he's like, oh, yeah, let's raise taxes. (laughs) Okay, all right, Chuck, thanks. Get that in an ad immediately. Meanwhile, John Ossoff, who is this, like, you know, totally unqualified guy who managed to lose a House race in Georgia and then win a Senate race last year because a lot of Republicans stayed home. He was asked by Brett Baer about inflation. Tell me if you can hear an answer to this question. Cut 23. When somebody says to you, what are Democrats doing to address inflation? What do you say? Well, look, the economic stress uh, that begins with the global pandemic, unprecedented effects on supply chains, uh, unemployment in the middle of 2020 that was over 14 percent, massive economic ripple effects in in, uh, every region of the world, um, and a massive fiscal and monetary response. All the associated shocks to our logistics infrastructure have all taken a toll. Uh, Families in my state of Georgia and families across the country are struggling with the rapidly rapidly rising prices of state like groceries uh, and gasoline. Congress has a role to play. The Fed has a role to play. That's uh, quite a speech there, John Ossoff. Not an answer, notably. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. (laughs) His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. As we continue here, it's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. For the free podcast, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. This now is Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and co-host of the podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, good to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. 
I want to start with foreign policy and Ukraine and Russia. I asked Senator Cornyn about this on the show yesterday. We saw Lavrov, the foreign minister in Russia, once again sort of making reference to nuclear weapons and possibly using them just the other day. Vladimir Putin hinting at that again in a quote that I just saw earlier this morning. You know, I kind of want to believe and tend to believe that this is just a lot of tough talk from a regime that's getting embarrassed. But I don't know. I, it is still very concerning and troubling to hear the top officials in that nuclear-armed country musing openly about deploying these types of weapons. How do you see this playing out? Are they just bluffing? Well, I'm a little older than you, so I live in the Cold War. And I remember when Soviet leaders would would, uh, saber-rattle with their nuclear weapons as well. Uh, And uh, Ronald We win I think we lose. lost Mark. And we're not we're not we're not uh, going to be intimidated by that. And oh, by the way, we're going to build a, we're going to build missile defense so you can't hit us. Um, so I, I think the reason why you hear Lavrov and Putin saying these things is because Joe Biden has indicated that that worries him um, and that that's been a deterrent to him. He, for, for months, he's been telling us we can't do this. We can't do that. All the things we can't do because we don't want to be provocative to the Russians because we don't want World War Three. I mean, he's talked about World War Three. So. The, the Russians are, you know, say, okay, that's a, that's a, uh, that's an open sore. Let's pour some, uh, let's pour some uh, vinegar on it, um, and uh, see if we can't get him to back off his support for the Ukrainians. I don't think they're going to nuke us uh, because if they nuke us, we nuke Moscow, and Vladimir Putin doesn't want to go down as the guy who uh, ended up destroying Moscow in in, in world history. Um, and I don't think they want to get into a even a conventional war with NATO because they can't beat Ukraine. So how how are they going to beat? Yeah, no. How are they going to get beat? So I I think it's this is all just designed to get us to stop doing uh, what we should be doing, which is helping the Ukrainians kick their asses. This is the thing, Mark, and I, I think that that's all what you said correctly. You dipped out for just a second, but I got the gist of of even that part. I'm not sure that the threat here would be the Russians nuking the United States of America or nuking you know the Brits or something like that retaliating for our support for Ukraine, what it could be is them at least hinting that they would consider, uh, you know, using tactical nuclear weapons, smaller nuclear weapons in Ukraine, maybe as a desperate move, perhaps from a man that some people believe is dying in the person of Vladimir Putin. And then, I mean, that opens up a can of worms in terms of what would the United States and NATO do? Because, They are not getting directly involved. They are helping Ukraine, and we are helping Ukraine in all sorts of very important ways. We are not directly involved in the fighting. If the Russians take one of their tactical nukes and, you know, use it in Ukraine somewhere and a bunch of people die, that's not a direct attack on the United States or NATO allies, but it's obviously a massively destabilizing and lethal escalation, and I just don't know what the response would be from the world. Again, I think it is still pretty far-fetched that the Russians do this, but they are talking a lot about it, and it seems like if they're going to do anything to back up that talk, it wouldn't be some you know, ICBM fired at New York. It would be something much smaller blown up in you know, Lviv or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be able to deter that. 
And uh, I think that it would be, I mean, none of us want to get the U.S. troops directly involved in, in, in a war, but if Russia were to be the first country uh, in the 21st century to use a tactical nuclear weapon in a battle, uh, there would be a lot of pressure for NATO to go in and, and, and finish this war up and, 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 and help the Ukrainians in, in a much more real sense. Um, so I, I, we need some declaratory policy to deter them from that. But but I I just think we have to understand that this is this is not this is not our first rodeo doing this. I mean there's there's something called the Reagan Doctrine, uh, which which you know back if you go back to when Ronald Reagan was first elected in in 1980 became president in 1980, America had just withdrawn from Vietnam. Uh, we were there was no appetite for the United States to go and to go and fight wars abroad and send thousands of American troops uh, to fight wars. And what we did was we ended up we ended up providing military assistance and and and, uh, and weapons and training and intelligence to freedom fighters around the world who were fighting communist expansionism. And we did it. We did it in Nicaragua. We did it in Angola. We did it in Afghanistan. In the case of Afghanistan, where it wasn't even proxies, they were there was actual Soviet troops. We were sent. You know. We're, we've been sending Stinger missiles to shoot down Russian planes. They're the same Stinger missiles shooting down the same planes that we were shooting down in Afghanistan in the 1980s, literally. And so, and it didn't become a nuclear war. It didn't become a well, World War III. Um, so I think we need to stop deterring ourselves by worrying too much about what Vladimir Putin is doing, uh, and and because it, it's handcuffing us in our in our ability to help the Ukrainians. Now, perhaps in the realm of more immediate likelihood, Putin said yesterday that Russia would not sign a peace deal with Ukraine unless it first agrees to, quote, solve the issues of Crimea and Donbass, at least on the working level. Uh, This is, of course, a reference to those territories and I guess maybe keeping those territories for good. And our colleague at Fox News, Lucas Tomlinson, said that when Jennifer Griffin, another one of our colleague, asked the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, about exactly this, the question was, you know, what did the U.S. want in Ukraine? Would it be back to a pre-February invasion borders of Ukraine or a pre-2014 borders of Ukraine before Putin took Crimea? That was a question that Secretary Austin just wouldn't answer. I understand that it's sort of sensitive it's a, a subject that is on Putin's mind. I wonder what you make of the, shall we say, ambiguity from Austin and what would be realistic in Ukraine. I wonder what the Ukrainian people or Zelensky would be willing to agree to, given everything that's happened. But it sounds like Putin saying the first thing that would have to happen for a peace deal is some sort of agreement in principle on the Donbass region of the east and then Crimea, which he stole in 2014. Yeah, so first of all, I think Austin is probably right not to answer that because it's not his question to answer. That's a question for Zelensky and the Ukrainian people to answer because it's their country, not ours. Uh, We should have a policy that we will back them no matter what choice they make. Uh, If they choose to negotiate and have a peace settlement, uh, then then we will back that. And if they want to fight and drive the Russians off of every inch of territory, including Donbass and Crimea, we'll back them and help them do that. It should be entirely their, their choice. And, you know, the fact that Putin is talking about this, you know, you're only he's only talking about peace deals now because he's losing. Um, and so when I look at the mass graves in uh, in in Bucha and the the atrocities that are being that are, that have taken place, uh, you know, I, that changes a lot. Uh, I don't think that Vladimir Putin should be rewarded with anything 
for what he's doing, especially since he's doing so. The war, the war is going so poorly for him. I think that the the, the you know if the Ukrainians want, if, again it's their choice well how far they want to take this, but we should support them in making sure that Russia gets absolutely nothing in exchange for uh, for that the, they're they're driven out either they they either leave because they're going to be killed or they or or they're driven out and killed on the way out. Uh, they, 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 Putin should not get any kind of rewards. We should not lift any. I, the way this war ends should should end is that the Russians leave by force and the sanctions stay on as long as Vladimir Putin is president of Russia. Mark Thiessen, here on the home front, I want to play you a couple sound bites that I just actually played for the audience last segment involving the Democrats and the issue of inflation. Chuck Schumer, I still can't quite believe he said this out loud, but he did. On inflation, cut 26, this is the Democratic majority leader of the U.S. Senate. If you want to get rid of inflation, the only way to do it is to um, undo a lot of the Trump tax cuts and raise rates. No Republican is ever going to do that. So the only way to get rid of inflation is through reconciliation. The only way to get rid of inflation, Mark, is to raise taxes. Yeah, because businesses are having a hard a hard enough time already. So what we should do is throw out some tax increases on them. I mean, you know, the the, the way to get rid of inflation is to stop spending government money and pouring government money into the pockets of people so that they don't have to work um, and help businesses so that they can hire more workers. We got we got eleven point three a record eleven point three million unfilled jobs in this country. Um, that there's a reason for that. That people, if people couldn't support themselves without working, they would. There wouldn't be 11.3 million unfilled jobs in this country. We need to help get people back into the workforce, and the way to do that is not to raise taxes on business. It's not to spend more money. You know, the, the we at, when Joe Biden came into office. There was a there was there was about a three billion three hundred billion dollar hole in the economy that needed to be filled with some sort of support, and he poured one point nine trillion dollars into it, and wanted to pour another three point five trillion. If it wasn't for Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, he would have yeah, done like that. Five trillion. Then, like, we add it all up. Yeah, I mean, stop spending money. No, and the thing is, they will never do that. That's why he's talking about reconciliation. They want to use reconciliation to keep spending even more money while raising taxes on the American people. And in his mind, it's the only way to stop inflation is to let businesses and people keep less of the money that they're earning, even with that money having less buying power, purchasing power right now under inflation. It's just an amazing golden soundbite for the Republican Party all across the country, in my mind. And that's the face of the Democrats in the Senate saying that this is how we solve inflation is by you know, raising taxes on Americans and getting rid of a lot of the Trump tax cuts, which, as I pointed out last segment, cut taxes across the board. Meanwhile, on inflation, our colleague Brett Bayer on Special Report had John Ossoff, who's sort of this you know underwhelming mediocrity who was able to win a Senate seat in Georgia because of a lot of well, Republican infighting down in that state, unfortunately, and we haven't seen the last of that, apparently. But Ossoff is now a U.S. senator. He was on a special report. Bayer asked him about the Democratic plan to combat inflation. And I'll just play you the answer. And I was unable to detect an answer here, but maybe you can, Mark Thiessen. Here it is. Cut 23. When somebody says to you, what are Democrats doing to address inflation? What do you say? Well, look, the economic stress uh, that 
begins with the global pandemic, unprecedented effects on supply chains, uh, unemployment in the middle of 2020 that was over 14 percent, um, massive economic ripple effects in, in uh, every region of the world. Um, and a massive fiscal and monetary response. All the associated shocks to our logistics infrastructure have all taken a toll. Uh, families in my state of Georgia and families across the country are struggling with the rapidly, prize, ra rapidly rising prices of staples like groceries uh, and gasoline. Congress has a role to play. The Fed has a role to play uh, because it's something that affects families in my state and states across the country every single day. All right, Mark Thiessen, that was... Uh a memorized speech with some talking points. But the question was, what are the Democrats doing to deal with those problems? And we didn't even uh, get a hint of an answer there, I don't think. Yeah, you can just take what he said and turn it into legislation and we'll solve the whole problem. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, ridiculous. it's ridiculous. Look, he's right that the, the pandemic uh, is responsible for some of the inflation. But sure. it's all the lockdowns that we now know didn't work put billion people out of work and disrupted our economy, combined with the inept federal response to those lockdowns of pouring more money into the economy than it could handle and giving people all sorts of free money uh, to not work. Uh, that's the, it's, those are the twin things, lockdowns and spending. Um, and so we need to we, we've finally you know we're you know we, we can't they're suing to keep the mask mandate they can't let they can't quit uh, they can't quit the uh, all the covid policies because they want to tell us how to live our lives and they can't quit spending and the only thing that saved us quite frankly are two democratic senators uh joe manchin and kristen cinema who stopped them in their tracks or we'd have you know double digit inflation and by the way interestingly peter schweitzer i was listening to peter schweitzer's podcast the other day which is really terrific and one of the things he pointed out was that infl we measure inflation differently than we did during the reagan years because people are saying we have the worst inflation since the 1980s if we use the same measure as we did in the 1980s inflation right now would be about 17 percent so you know, this this is as Yikes. bad as it's been in a very, very long time. Mark Tyson, last question. And it's something that we could probably talk about for an entire segment. But instead, let's, you know, get your thoughts distilled down to, to a minute or two. I'm interested to see the Trump effect in some of these uh, com uh, com contested races around the country, Republican primaries. I'm looking at Ohio in the Senate, where it's, that's sort of been like a clown show of a primary. And Trump has come all in for J.D. Vance who was languishing in fourth place in a lot of the polls. New Fox News poll has him now in first place, top of the pack. That seems to have really moved the needle for Vance, you know, the backing of Trump. But in Georgia, in the governor's race, last two polls, one just out yesterday, has Brian Kemp, the bet noir of Donald Trump down in Georgia, the sitting governor, running away with that primary, almost doubling up David Perdue, who's, you know, Trump's guy down there. It's interesting to see Trump having a big impact in Ohio, maybe not in Georgia. Just give us a minute of analysis, Mark. What do you make of that? I think it'll be mixed. I think there'll be some places where Trump's impact will be will be huge, and there'll be some places where it, where it's negligible. Um, you know, I, I, as you said, in Georgia, which is like, you know, where he took his stand, I think a lot of people are having buyer's remorse in Georgia over over what Trump did because they see their two their two Democratic senators uh, have given the, gave the Democrats the majority, which allowed them to spend that one trillion one point nine trillion dollars, which gave us the, uh, you know, eight point five percent inflation that we're now suffering. Uh, so uh, Georgia, I think they've learned the lesson of, of uh, not getting caught up in Trump's uh, in Trump's conspiracy theory about the election. 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I think the, the real interesting race is the one in Florida with Governor DeSantis, because Trump won Florida by about 3 percent. DeSantis is up by 9 percent in Florida right now. Some polls have him as high as 21 percent. Uh, the new University of Florida poll just came out. Um, and he's offering he's, – he's just like Trump. He's a counterpuncher, but without the baggage. And I think a lot of Republicans who lo- like Donald Trump thought he was a great president. I, I, I certainly did in many ways in terms of his policies, who thought he was treated unfairly, as I do, worry that, we would, that he could lose the election for us in 2024. And, they, and we know the consequences are so high. And so we don't want to we, – we like Trump, but we want, we want to see if we can get Trumpism without Trump. And I think that's where hopefully the DeSantis election is had is it might be giving us a path to that. Mark Thiessen, columnist at The Washington Post, Fox News contributor, former presidential speechwriter here on The Guy Benson Show. Mark, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, NPR has sort of an interesting story about a woman named Christina Warren. She's a software developer, former journalist, and she has this hobby, collecting swag from companies that fail and flame out in spectacular fashion. So like the Fire Festival. She has a mug all the way back from Enron. Quibi, the media company that crashed and burned. Movie Pass. Here's a photo of her in a T-shirt for MoviePass. She said she has a new addition to the collection. It is CNN Plus. She's got like a koozie from CNN Plus. She says so far her white whale, the one that she really wants but hasn't been able to track down, is some goodies or swag from Theranos, the Elizabeth Holmes racket. So uh, best of luck to her on that. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Much more to get to, including Molly Hemingway. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Our middle hour is now here. Thank you very much for tuning in between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday for the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, back from the border. I was down in South Texas Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, back home today. Very glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. You can get the podcast there. It's free on demand every day. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GuyBensonShow. Fox News alert. The Dow closing up in the green, not by a lot, but at least uh, coming off the schneid a bit today. The closing number was up 61 points. Dow ending the day at 33,301. Joining us now is Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks, a Republican from Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. She's a doctor, lieutenant colonel, and also former director of Iowa's Public Health Department. And Congresswoman, it's great to have you back here on the show. Good afternoon. It's uh, nice to be with you. I want to ask you about the hearing that took place 
in the House earlier today, and we played some of the clips at the top of the show with the DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. As you may have heard there in our opening of the hour, I spent the last three days down at the border in Del Rio, in McAllen. I was embedded with Operation Lone Star. I spoke with a lot of people in charge of trying to staunch the bleeding with this border crisis caused by Biden policies and some of the things being asserted and claimed by the secretary of DHS today uh, before your committee were just sort of astounding to me. I know that you just had the opportunity to question him while we were on the air. What can you tell us about your overall impressions of what Mayorkas was saying? And did anything stand out to you during your Q&A with him? Well, I think it was, uh, you, you know, the secretary is a professional and he was very good at dodging the questions and, you know, giving answers and very long winded answers when he could that really don't answer the question. Uh, you know, one of the most uh, astounding things was right uh, as I was asking my question, uh, he was asked by, um, you know, uh, one of our colleagues from the other side of the aisle whether or not the wall was important and walls work. And he said walls didn't work. So, um you know, my statement to him when uh, I, my question time came was, well, Speaker Pelosi may disagree with you because we had walls around the Capitol for over six months. Uh, so obviously walls do work, uh, the walls, the technology. But, you know, this is an individual who is not supporting uh, Customs and Border Protection agents. Uh, their morale is terrible. Uh, their attrition rate is very high. Uh, it's hard for them to recruit and it's hard for them to retain. The early retirement is up. And it's all because they're not doing what they signed up to do, which was to protect the border. Instead, what they're doing is processing people as rapidly as possible so you don't have large people piled up at the border like we did over the summer with the, uh, you know, approximately 18,000 Haitian immigrants. This whole walls don't work thing, I just I don't understand how they believe that that's going to convince anyone beyond a small band of activists who just, you know, chant that phrase over and over again until they believe it. I mean, the walls, the very men and women that you were just talking about at CBP, they have been practically begging for more barriers, more walls, even some Democrats who voted against the wall over and over again because that's what their base demanded. They're starting to talk about more barriers. I just think it's it's an insult to the intelligence of people who have ever encountered a wall in any context to tell them that those are not effective means of at least uh, to some extent keeping people out of places where they shouldn't be why do they keep saying something that is so uh, just facially ridiculous well because you know they want to uh, transit as many people into the country as rapidly as possible which is what they're doing you know ask the people who own farms and ranches along the border uh, in every uh, every state that abuts the border who have their fences uh, cut so, you know, a barbed wire fence may not work, but certainly the 30-foot walls that we have up, and the walls have technology, and the technology goes with the wall. So it's the wall, the technology, the sensors, uh, the drones, all of that that we need to do to protect our border and protect people from coming in here. Uh, and we have a, you know, a fentanyl crisis. We had record numbers of overdose deaths. We know mental health has been a problem through the pandemic. So we're just going to compound that by allowing more and more illegal drugs and synthetic fentanyl to come into our country, all of which is manufactured in China. And uh, while, you know, the agents are busy processing individuals coming into this country, there are people on the terror watch list that are coming into this country. So the numbers that were given of 2.4 million since the president was inaugurated, those are the numbers that of encounters. That's not all the rest who 
uh, were encountered and left or who were got not away. encountered at all. No censor. Yep. They got away. Yep, that's uh, over 3 million when you put those people and you add that number all up. And that doesn't count the unknown gotaways. Congresswoman, I want to ask you this as well. In your intro, I mentioned that you're a doctor. You were the director of Iowa's public health department. And I'm trying to maybe decipher what Dr. Fauci has been saying over the last few days. I, I don't really take much guidance from him at all anymore on this stuff, but a lot of people still do. And I'm looking at some quotes from him literally yesterday. He was on PBS NewsHour. They tweeted out a clip and a quote of him saying to Judy Woodruff that the United States is now, quote, out of the pandemic phase, which is great. I think a lot of people have been saying, yes, it's been endemic for a while. We shouldn't treat it as a pandemic anymore. That was yesterday, Fauci saying that's sort of where we are in his mind. Then today, this afternoon, he gave a new quote to CBS News where he said this, quote, we certainly cannot say the pandemic is over. It's not over. Just a few, what, a week or two ago, Fauci said that we need to keep wearing masks on airplanes and trains. But then he said the pandemic phase is over. Then he says, no, it's not. He now is not going to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner anymore because of COVID concerns. But the president, who's, you know, what, almost 80 years old, he is going to be there. And the White House says there'll be this whole theater with sometimes masks, sometimes not. Is it fair for the American people to look at all of this, the actions, the words, the jumble, and just ignore it? Because I feel like it's so incoherent. That's what a lot of people have decided to do. From your medical perspective, what do you think? From my medical perspective, I say yes. It's time to move on. It's time to learn to live with the virus. Yes, there will be continued variants, uh, but we already know that the vast majority of Americans have immunity, as does probably the rest of the world. I mean, we just saw a couple of weeks ago Philadelphia reinstitute a mask mandate. I commented on it at the time. They did it on the basis of increasing cases, even though there was no increase in hospitalizations or deaths. And for for months now, uh, many of us have been saying, actually almost a year, that the metric is not the number of cases or the number of positive tests. The number is the number of hospitalizations and the numbers of deaths. So, you know, I think you get, we continue to get, uh, you know, uh, different rhetoric out of uh, Dr. Fauci, out of the CDC. Uh, We get different advice. You have the uh, FDA that goes against uh, its own experts' advice when it comes to boosters. And so I think the American people, they're smart, they're resilient, They're going to look around, see the number of people that um, are infected, look at the numbers of hospitalizations, look at their own state data, and then make a determination if they have risk factors. If they're in a vulnerable population, then certainly you may want to take other uh, protective mitigating um, stances, whether that's avoiding uh, being in large crowds or masks. Um, But I think it's, it's up to us now to protect ourselves. We don't need an overarching authoritarian government to continue to breathe down our necks. And to tell us on one hand, when it comes to the border, there's no pandemic. But on the other hand, when it comes to, uh, you know, having to get a vaccination to get on a plane or having to wear a mask on a plane or having to, to uh, wear a mask otherwise, then the pandemic is still in place. So I think by by, by and large, we're in an, the endemic phase and uh, people can, um, you know, adjust in accordance with their own risk. You know, Dr. You giving that answer there with all the sirens in the background. I was starting to get worried that Fauci might be coming for you. But it sounds like you've evaded him, which is good. Bravo. Uh, One more question on this. It involves children. 
I mentioned this briefly yesterday on the show. The CDC put out an estimate that three out of four children in the United States have had COVID at this point. So I I don't know if that technically counts as herd immunity, but roughly 75% of kids having already had the virus, that is a ton of natural immunity that's out there. I know some people are clinging to this thing that younger children haven't had the opportunity to get vaccinated yet, so we have to keep masking kids, even though there's no science behind that. I read that one district, a prominent district in Maryland, uh, the leader of that school district or that county is threatening or at least talking about going back to virtual learning for kids because of this reason. I mean, how significant is the CDC number if it is true that roughly three out of every four American kids at this point have already had COVID and recovered from it because we know the hospitalization rates are infinitesimally small among kids and the death rate, thankfully, among children in America from COVID even lower than that, vanishingly rare. What's the policy lesson there? So um, I just had the opportunity to, uh, to uh, get uh, testimony from Secretary Becerra uh, at the Select uh, Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Task Force uh, and at Education and Labor. And we asked him this very question, why are they mandating that children in Head Start programs wear masks when we're in the end- endemic phase? Uh, the mask, especially masks in children, probably have very little effectiveness and their vaccination status is really uh, not relevant because they're at right. extremely low risk of disease or uh, of death. So given that, why are we still, and I um, did uh, legislations on this, co-sponsored them, why are we continuing uh, to mandate that children, uh, the ones that are the most, um, uh, the most likely to survive or not get ill, why are we continuing to require they wear a mask? Uh, I, there, is no, there is no good science or recommendation for that. Um, children should be able to go back to school. The learning loss, the suicide, the mental health, the, the loss of learning, the poverty, the child abuse is astonishing that they do not, the Democrats do not care about children. They do not care about children if they're continued to push these policies. What did Becerra say in response to that question? Well, you know, what's his medical answer there as a non-doctor in his case? Uh, that uh, he relies upon the CDC. And the CDC says that they didn't, uh, they didn't say a mask mandate. They just give recommendations. Ah, so just uh, sort of the hot potato back and forth and back and forth. And unfortunately, it's kids caught in the middle of this based on no science. That, that is frustrating but not surprising. Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks, Republican of Iowa, too, a medical doctor there, as I mentioned. Congresswoman, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for your insights today. Thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate being on. You bet. And we'll take a quick break. Stepping aside, coming right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So we were just talking about hearings on the House side with Secretary Becerra, Secretary Mayorkas. On the Senate side, we recently saw Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, testifying before the U.S. Senate and the Foreign Relations Committee. And Senator Ted Cruz of Texas was asking him about the Iranian government and the IRGC and some reported plots that the Iranians are trying to actively kill, assassinate, U.S. officials, either from the Trump administration and possibly uh, from the current administration. And it seemed as though Blinken was at least heavily hinting that those reports are true. 
He said he wasn't sure what he could say in an open setting, you know, not off the record, not in sort of a, a classified hearing. But he certainly did not shoot down the reports that the U.S. intelligence community knows that Iran is attempting these things and targeting past or current American officials. And that led to this exchange. It was a whole long back and forth. Cruz tweeted about it. Here's part of it. Senator Cruz, Secretary Blinken, cut 38. This was from yesterday. Is it true that the IRGC is actively trying to murder former senior officials of the United States? I'm not sure what I can say in, uh, in an open setting, but let me say generically that there is uh, an ongoing threat uh, against um, uh, American officials, both present and, uh, and past. Is it true that the State Department is spending roughly $2 million a month to protect those officials? And we are, make, we, will, we are making sure and we will make sure for as long as it takes that we're protecting our people, present and former, if they're, if they're under threat. And, and I'm assuming you would agree that attempting to murder a Secretary of State or a former Secretary of State is a pretty damn big deal. Uh, I would certainly agree with that. Yes. So that's the question and answer part where it sounds, again, you can read between the lines, that yes, the threats are real. Yes, they are ongoing. Yes, they're directed perhaps. It sounds like maybe Mike Pompeo. We've heard about John Bolton. We've heard about uh, any number of other people from the Trump administration, Robert O'Brien. And the threat could also exist against current officials as well. And Blinken was not denying at all right there that the State Department is spending a lot of money protecting those former officials from these threats from the Iranians, which is the right thing to do, of course. Now, one of the things that Cruz also asked later on in the exchange was, would the Biden administration commit to, or at least say that they have already, formally requested to the Iranians via these proxies, the Russians, because that's what the negotiation is right now still, Uh, in Switzerland, would they ask the Iranians formally to stop those terror plots, to put an end to those terror plots? And Cruz said, despite being asked that question on three different occasions during the hearing, Blinken wouldn't answer it. You might think that a prerequisite for even engaging in negotiations with the anti-American, death-to-America, Iranian regime would be for them to pledge and show proof that they are putting an end to active plots to kill U.S. officials. Like, that would be maybe just like, you know, clearing the decks to even have a conversation. We're way past that point. That conversation's been happening through the middleman of Russia that we continue relying on, we being the Biden people, Although a number of people on Biden's team, we've talked about this, left the negotiation altogether. They were so disgusted with the breadth of the giveaway, what the Biden people were willing to surrender to the Iranians. We have to go through Russian diplomats, Putin's pariah diplomats, to even talk to Tehran because the Iranians hate us so much and hate the country so much they won't even talk to us face to face. And the giveaway that's been reported, I mean, it seems like the Iranians could be on the brink of getting virtually everything they could ever hope for and want. The Russians seem quite pleased with everything. There have been a few snags, thank goodness, in this process. But the degree to which the Iranians are engaged in so much 
treachery here. And the fact that the Biden people are just, you know, honoring them and, and legitimizing them in these negotiations through the Russians, it's, it's astonishing to me. It's appalling. And Cruz, you heard the question and answer there. It very much sounds like Blinken is saying, yes, the threats are ongoing. Yes, we have to protect our people against those Iranian threats. And then time after time, when the question was, has the Biden administration in these ridiculous negotiations through the Russians, have they demanded or requested that Iran stop with those plots? Blinken wouldn't answer the question. Not once, not twice, not a third time. What a farce this is that's playing out. And the big reward, if the deal goes through, is a nuclear threshold state in Iran in a matter of a few years. Horrible foreign policy, yet... Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. As we continue on The Guy Benson Show, halfway through the show, halfway through the week, thank you for listening. Back here... At the home base in Washington, D.C. Really appreciate you being here. GuyBensonShow.com podcast, free of charge every day on demand. A topic that I wrote about earlier in the week, but we didn't get around to covering yet here on the air, is one of the many seemingly endless controversies surrounding Florida and Ron DeSantis and the media coming after him. And one of these new examples that's cropped up is the state of Florida rejecting a pretty high percentage, right around 40% of math textbooks based on some of the laws that they have in place against woke or politicized curricula. And I saw a whole torrent of mockery from DeSantis critics about this. Like, how is it possible that under this new scenario that they've created it, in the DeSantis administration, that Florida is now rejecting a large chunk of even math textbooks. Isn't this run amok backlash to political correctness? Is this, in its own right, a new form of right-wing political correctness and politicized censorship? That's the question. That's the allegation, that things have now gone too far in the state of Florida. So DeSantis was asked about this. And this was last week. I've been hanging on to this clip because I really want to play it for you. He was challenged by a reporter about these allegations. And here's how he framed them sort of at a 40,000-foot top-down level, not getting into all of the minutia yet, but describing his overall philosophy on this stuff. Cut 35, listen. We got rid of Common Core, as you know. We have best standards, which is a a better uh, way to do a lot of things, but particularly math. I mean, one of the criticisms was the parents couldn't help their kids with the math homework. So any of the books that don't meet the best standards are are not going to be appropriate for us to use. Uh, You do have things like social and emotional learning and some of the other things that are more political in there. In our view on something like math, first, it doesn't meet the standards, but second, You know, math is about getting the right answer, and we want kids to learn to think so they get the right answer. It's not about how you feel about the problem or to introduce some of these other things. It's there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, and we want all our students getting the right answers. And so most of the books 
that did not meet Florida standards for whatever reason happened to be in the early grades. Uh, as you get into the older grades, most of those books did meet the standards, but um, uh, we're going to continue to focus uh, the education on the actual strong academic performance of the students. Uh, we don't want things like math to have you know, some of these other concepts introduced. It's not been proven to be effective, and, and quite frankly, it takes our eye off the ball. I think this is a good answer. And I like the part in particular about math being about getting the correct response, the correct answer. That's what math is. There's a right and there's a wrong. There's a way to do it. You arrive at a conclusion that is either correct or incorrect. It's not about how you feel about the problem, how you feel about the answer. So the New York Times actually did an investigation into some of these textbooks. And part of what they describe is that they ask, in some of the rejected material, students to write what they're calling math biographies. And then, quote, teachers could read the biographies to learn which students would need extra support. Some McGraw-Hill pages include social-emotional prompts that have little to do with the math problems, such as this example below from a fifth-grade book. Beneath an ordinary math problem, students are asked, How can you understand your feelings? That's the type of thing that DeSantis is taking aim at in the clip that we just played. Josh Barrow, who's sort of an interesting writer and thinker, I'd call him maybe a centrist, sometimes center-right, sometimes center-left. He was quoting from this New York Times story, and he concedes the point, this stuff really does sound like some touchy-feely BS that should be left out of textbooks not for any especially political reason. Someone who I follow on Twitter, who I think is a very reliable and careful person on that platform, and there's not a ton of them, admittedly, his handle is at AGHamilton29. He's a lawyer, he's a conservative, and he's smart, and he tries to get things right. He also read the New York Times story. Here's his takeaway. Quote, I'm reading this New York Times deep dive into the books that Florida rejected from their math curriculum, and it's only making me think that Florida actually did a good job vetting. This admits the books have a lot of nonsense that has little to do with teaching kids math. Now, those are two assessments from people that I find to be interesting thinkers based on a New York Times story that I would imagine, again, maybe I'm being a bit of a cynic, I've got a lot of that going on these days, I feel like the New York Times, if they could find nothing there, they would love for that to be the story. They would love the story to be Ron DeSantis down in Florida censoring math textbooks for little kids based on weird right-wing bogeymen that don't really exist. They would love to print that story. Instead, they actually found some stuff that is striking a lot of people as perhaps beyond the scope of teaching basic math to children, which is the point. That's the whole goal of mathematics education. The state of Florida itself also released a number of examples from textbooks that were rejected. And again, I'm not going to necessarily endorse every single vetting decision that was made because we don't have all of that information. What we know is there are a lot of people either tearing their hair out about this being extremely dangerous government fascism or whatever, or mocking the hell out of Florida, being like, oh, this is 
super weird and DeSantis is kind of a freak and the Republicans are out of control down there. Well, actually, no. New York Post has this write-up of what the state of Florida presented as some evidence backing up and justifying a number of their decisions. Reading now from the Post story, the Florida Department of Education has released examples of what it calls problematic material that led to bans on dozens of math textbooks, including a lesson with an algebra graph measuring racial prejudice. The DOE, at the state level, rejected 54 math textbooks, about 41% of publisher submissions, for content that officials said try to, quote, indoctrinate students or expose them to divisive concepts. Facing a slew of requests to share examples of what led to bans, the department posted four photos of math problems on its website. What, me, racist? Says one lesson, titled, Adding and Subtracting Polynomials. Quote, more than two million people have tested their racial prejudice using an online version of the implicit association test. Most groups' average scores fell between slight and moderate bias, but the difference among groups by age and political identification are intriguing, end quote. The problem states. Another problem, a math problem, involves graphs that supposedly measure levels of racial prejudice that are broken down by age and political identification. They were based on the implicit association test as well as the polynomials lesson, although it wasn't clear if both problems were for the same rejected textbook. A third posted lesson said its objective was for students to build proficiency with social awareness as they practice with emphasizing with classmates, end quote, which is not even a well-written sentence. So you've got a weird social awareness empathy component here, which might be interesting for sort of like the softer subject, softer science in a different context, not a math textbook. And then several examples involving race, alleged racial prejudice. And by the way, this is based on these implicit bias tests that are of dubious value, according to critics. And then they're injecting these issues into a math problem with graphs and stuff, which isn't really about the math itself, right? You could create another example to fill in these graphs and kids can then solve the problem. They are going out of their way to inject divisive racial and political concepts into the math questions, which I think is definitely not appropriate for math textbooks for grade school kids or middle school kids or whatever it is, right? Some implicit bias test. Then they break it down by age and by political identification. It's like, oh, look at these old Republicans being extra racist or whatever the correct quote-unquote answer is. Makes me wonder what else is in textbooks all across the country being slipped in there by people writing these lesson plans and these math problems for kids. Trying to infuse them with political and social justice messaging maybe below the radar, and it seems like in Florida they've had enough of that. So the people all slapping their knees or lighting themselves on fire, there was that range of opposition about Florida's vetting process, I actually think might need to reconsider their knee-jerk reaction to this. I know they want to be mad at every single thing Ron DeSantis does in many cases, but here, based on the examples that have been ferreted out by the New York Times – 
and then also provided by the state of Florida, it seems like at least there's some smoke to that fire there. And there are some examples in these math textbooks for younger kids, as DeSantis pointed out, that have no business being in that type of material. So I just wanted to highlight that because I had seen a few stray headlines about this controversy. And I'll admit, it's like, oh, that seems like a high percentage of math textbooks to be rejected. Math textbooks, really? Like, I could imagine a history, imagine in the social studies stuff what might be in there. But math? Well, yeah, as it turns out, yes, math. Because they're putting some of this nonsense, gratuitously inserting it into math problems. It reminds me of one that Superintendent of Detroit Public Schools and I've played this clip on the air multiple times because we hear from people saying, oh, there's no critical race theory being taught in schools. That's a right-wing fever dream. That's a paranoid lie from right-wingers who are also racist, by the way. It's not happening. Then it's like, okay, well, here's the Detroit superintendent bragging in public in front of a whole auditorium about how they infuse their entire curriculum with critical race theory. His words. And he says it's across disciplines, too. It's not just in the areas where you might expect it. It's elsewhere, for example, seems like math in the math textbooks or the math lesson plans. So I just wanted to flag that for you, bring you an update there. By the way, in the same post that I wrote at townhall.com about this, I noted that the latest major Florida poll to come out of that state was about a month ago, a little over a month ago, that had DeSantis at a 59% approval rating and winning big over his would-be Democratic opponents. We'll be very interested to see what the numbers look like in the next set of Florida polling. Because since early to mid-March, all the way through to now, it has just been a huge rumble down there on culture issues, the Disney stuff, the parental rights bill, the don't say gay sloganeering, all of that has played out over the course of about five or six weeks. So we'll see if DeSantis has taken a hit on any of that stuff or if he's just, you know, steady as he goes or if he's even benefited. Because we know that, for example, the parental rights bill was quite popular in a lot of respects after people were inundated with all this propaganda about it, and then they were asked, okay, do you agree with X, Y, and Z? And many people, a majority, in Florida and in the country said, actually, yes. So I'll be curious to see how DeSantis's numbers look. There is one element here that I do want to bring to your attention because I was critical of DeSantis on this Disney thing, even though I'm all for going after Disney, calling out their hypocrisy, shaming them for their cowardice and their cravenness and their double standards, when it came to the parental rights law and their involvement in China and all of it. I like the fact that DeSantis did not back down in the face of pressure from Disney and, in fact, kind of flipped them the bird and beat them. Then they went that next step further to punish Disney by taking away some of these privileges. I was concerned about the precedent there. I was concerned about the principle there. I also mentioned I wasn't sure this was going to work out well in practice, even if viscerally you liked what DeSantis was doing. And now here's the Miami Herald with a story out yesterday. Headline, Disney's special district tells investors the state can't dissolve it without paying its debt. And the story gets into 
existing law under the agreement with Disney and the state that suggests that if the lawmakers are going to, in fact, strip these privileges away from Disney, as they've now decided that they would in recently passed legislation, based on the original agreement or the previous law in place, Florida law, this is statute, the state of Florida might have to pay debts off for Disney, which could be a huge price tag. And if that were to get passed to taxpayers, that could be, you know, a big black eye. So it kind of feels here like, and I I want to see how this shakes out. There's almost certainly going to be a a legal battle over this. And maybe the plan here is to fight Disney in court. Disney could win this skirmish in court. And then, you know, DeSantis doesn't have to back down. The legislature doesn't have to back down. But the whole special agreement doesn't fall through because ultimately it's actually in the best interest of everyone, the state and the company and taxpayers. Maybe that's where this is headed. But it strikes me as a situation of Disney playing stupid games and winning stupid prizes for itself. And then perhaps the Republicans in Florida overreaching in response, playing their own stupid games and now confronting their own stupid prizes that they might be stuck with unless this thing gets resolved another way. So I'm going to keep an eye on that because this was one of the concerns that I raised here on the air that seems to be coming to the fore. And it was, it appears a legitimate concern that I had about this particular tactic and this action by the Florida legislature and the governor of Florida. With that, we will step aside. We will come back. A story out of New York City involving a transgender inmate. Wait to hear these details. We'll get to that when we return on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, last week we briefly mentioned controversy in New Jersey where two female inmates have been impregnated by a transgender female inmate at the same prison facility in the Garden State. It's like, okay, there's clearly an issue there. I saw another report out of Washington State with multiple incidents of sexual abuse by convicted felons who are transgender with this abuse being directed at female inmates by biologically male inmates who identify as female and are therefore in women's prisons. Here's the latest example from Rikers Island, New York City. A male inmate, this is from National Review, a biologically male inmate, this is according to National Review, identifying as a woman has now been convicted of raping a female prisoner while housed at the women's facility at Rikers. This person was named Ramel, now goes by Diamond. She raped using her male genitalia a female inmate at Rikers Island. And the assailant has now been sentenced to seven years. But the assailant presumably will serve those seven years in a women's prison, which seems to be the problem here because this person is raping women in prison. It's a target-rich environment. I don't see how this is sustainable or fair to virtually anyone involved. I don't know what the perfect solution is, but this can't be it. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. After this, Molly Hemingway joins us straight ahead. (laughs) 
Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern or around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. You can also find our social media contact points at that same website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can get the podcast there. You can go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We've been telling you about big things to come, big doings ahead with the Long Drink as they expand. In fact, producer Christine and I are getting a briefing, a secret private briefing tomorrow about some of those plans, and we will share what we can when we can. But what you know is that it's delicious, it's refreshing, it is alcoholic, 21-plus only, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com to see where it's sold near you already, hopefully. You can also order online, but more news to come, thelongdrink.com. Joining me now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, a Fox News contributor and author of the book Rigged. You can follow her on Twitter at MZ Hemingway. Molly, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. I want to just thank you again for having Adam and me over for Easter along with many other people. That was quite a scene. How late did it go? It was supposed to end at 6 p.m., and I finally got people out of there at 2 a.m. 2 a.m.? Yeah. I thought you were exaggerating. I thought you were exaggerating (laughs) when you said this thing becomes a late-night affair. Uh, evidently not. 2 a.m., that's that's a lot with work and school on a Monday. Yeah, I think a lot of these people had Monday off, which is great. I'm happy for them. I yeah, happy for them. Off. Not so happy for you because it's your house. I did tell the story. I hope you don't mind. And I'm sure you heard it because I know you religiously listen to the podcast every day of the show. But just in case you missed this one segment, I did reveal the cool thing that you were doing when you and I were hanging out in your kitchen and chatting for like an hour or two, you were drinking bubbly, like a rosé Prosecco out of a science beaker, which is something I, I had not seen before. It was like from a chemistry lab, and I thought that was a very cool, nonchalant thing to do, but also like keep track of how much alcohol intake you were engaged in over the course of, as it turns out, what, like 14 hours of party? Yeah, I might need to take you up on that that idea. I might just like steal that from you. It turned out to be a very wise course of action for pacing oneself, but I just love the beakers and I like that. I, there's something about the precision of what you're pouring that I, that I like. But uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> I was just you can saying, like, I think a lot of people have a vision or an impression of Molly Hemingway that they see, you know, from Special Report, for example, and then this was a different side of Molly Hemingway in an apron, dealing with one ham after another, going into and out of the oven while drinking a pinkish, effervescent alcoholic beverage out of a chemistry beaker. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a good look. I'll, I'll be honest. A little different than normal. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Molly, I want to talk about the collective mental breakdown that is happening among a lot of people in a certain class 
the Twitter class, you might even call them, uh, journalists, Democrats who are you know, elected officials, uh, people who work in tech, progressive activists over this apparently done but still pending deal for Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, to buy Twitter and take it. You and I are both on Twitter a lot, for better and for worse. I would say often for worse, but it's kind of part of the job, part of what we do. My position on this has been sort of like ambivalent to slightly positive and certainly, uh, you know, like amused by some of the massive reactions in either direction. But I have been maybe I'm just like still out to lunch, even though I've been on that godforsaken platform now for years. I was not prepared for the volume of meltdown that we've seen, the, the degree, the scope of the meltdown. It was almost on the level of like a Supreme Court nomination or the Democrats losing a presidential election. Like it got close to that type of nuclear response from these folks. What's your read on all of that? It has been amazing to watch. So I think about you, actually, and you've been working on the topic of the importance of not just laws governing freedom of speech, but having a culture of freedom of speech. So Mm -hmm. I've been reading you and listening to you on this topic for years, for a very long time, and you talk about how there are these people who don't want a culture of freedom of speech. I agree with you. I have been convinced, and I've been talking about it. But even I was unprepared to actually witness it in action, where the mere threat that freedom of expression might be more fully realized was cause for this horrific breakdown on the left. It was, I think, even worse than a lot of people on the on the right. Or it's not even the right. This is just like a classical liberal issue of: Do you believe that people should have freedom of expression, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of the press? If you disagree with an idea, you combat it with words rather than violence or suppression. Um, they really revealed how certain parts of our society view that as an existential threat, that they can't exist in a culture of free speech, and it's been amazing to watch. Here's a just a taste of some of the reaction in the media. Quick montage here, cut 28. I don't think anyone disagrees it should be a free and open uh, debate or, or platform, mm-hmm. but, I mean, should it be a, necessarily a font for misinformation and, or to, you know, say... Uh, Mm -hmm. things about people that just aren't true? Elon Musk buying Twitter says a lot about the priorities of people at the highest levels making decisions that could affect the fate of the planet. If you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party? Or are you going to decide to stay home? Molly, the clip I really want to get your reaction to, though, was from Ari Melber at MSNBC. I saw you tweeted about it. We played it for Byron York yesterday. I was like... I would kick myself if I didn't play it for Molly and get her reaction. So here it is from MSNBC, Ari Melber envisioning this dystopian future of Twitter under Elon Musk. It is almost performance art. I don't know what to call it. Listen to cut three. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees. Or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. Molly, could you imagine Twitter or any big tech platform doing the types of things that Ari just advanced there in that 
hypothetical that didn't sound super hypothetical, I think, to a lot of people on the right. Right. I literally just wrote a book about how tech algorithms meddled in our election and how that's not something you want to tolerate. I mean, international observers talk about how having powerful tech companies meddling in elections in the way that they did in 2020 leads to a less free and less fair election. It was stunning to hear him describe exactly what was done to very many candidates in 2020 with suppressing their speech, with decreasing the reach of their message, and acting like this was like some future hypothetical as opposed to what we all lived through and what we all witnessed and what we all know we lived through is just stunning. So I appreciate that he described the very real power that tech companies have to control elections. Uh, it would be nice if he cared about it, regardless of which party benefited from it. I mentioned some elected Democrats. The tweets were flying. Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, was very concerned about a billionaire having all of this control. And I suggested very politely in response on Twitter that she could start her own platform. This is what we're always told, right? You know, back when Donald Trump was getting banned from Twitter and conservatives were mad, a bunch of these Usually anti-market liberals were like, oh, well, you know, cope, right-wingers. It's a private company. They can do what they want. Well, here's a company going even more private in its own way with Elon Musk taking it over. And so I guess just using that standard that they love to throw in our faces, Elizabeth Warren could, you know, start her own thing and called it, you know, I don't know, scolder or something like that and just see how that goes for her. I think that's like I hope I'm doing this right. Then Ed Markey, who's a Democrat from Massachusetts in the Senate, he was demanding, quote, algorithmic justice in his tweet. I don't even know what that means, but they are really struggling with this, Molly. And these are like U.S. senators. None of us really know what an Elon Musk-led company might do. All we have to go with is what he said. And what he's said is that he supports uh, a free speech culture based on what the law views as free speech. This is why people are freaking out. It says so much to me that this idea of freedom of expression being – this idea that that would be bad, I mean, that is, tells you just what two different realities we're living in. I think you heard people say, what if you're allowed to disagree with someone and say something mean? And I'm thinking, well, that's what a lot of us have been dealing with for a long time. We have people be very mean when they disagree with us, and we have to counter with our words and with our arguments and with our um, our best – way of putting things. And this is actually what America is all about. It's what we've been about for hundreds of years. It has worked really well. These concepts that you constrain, that you do dramatic constraint of speech based on what a current regime views as dangerous speech. Usually it, that just means something that disagrees with right, or misinformation or disinformation. We've talked a lot about how those things are mislabeled, misapplied, abused to shut down things that really just come down to differences of opinion or dissent or different worldviews. I do like the idea of sort of flashing into the future and having some of these people outside Twitter headquarters chanting, what do we want? Algorithmic justice. When do we want it? Now. And Elon won't even be there. He'll be somewhere else. Other people will be running the show for him. But That actually brings us to the next point, and you kind of hinted at this, Molly. We don't really know what an Elon Muskified Twitter will actually look like in practice. There will be rules. My hope is that the rules are just evenly applied finally in a transparent way. I think that would be, like, job number one here. But should conservatives maybe slow our roll a little bit on the celebration, given that we don't really know what this guy's going to do with the platform? He's not a conservative. 
he's in many ways a liberal or, you know, someone who's more on the left. I think he's got a generally better worldview than a lot of leftists. I think he's not illiberal. I think that he is pro-free speech. These are all improvements. But, you know, he's not necessarily one of us, doesn't have to be to do a good job. He does have some of these connections to China, and there's a huge amount of business he does over there, a massive Shanghai plant, for example, for Tesla. They've expanded into Xinjiang, which is where the genocide is happening. I mean, it's not like this guy is just a hero that conservatives should be, you know, just worshiping at the altar of Elon Musk just because he's literally, in this case, owning the libs for us here. I'm just a little bit, I don't know, hesitant, a little bit recalcitrant to jump on board this bandwagon, even though it's sort of fun at the moment. What do you think of that? I would kind of split the baby, and I would say it is absolutely fine and good to celebrate right now because just the simple action of what he's done by buying, by making this offer, has led to so much helpful, uh, transparent revelation about what we're dealing with with people who do not believe in free speech. So regardless of what happens, because we don't know, the regime, the government might actually still prevent him from purchasing it. We don't know how he will be when he purchases it. But just based on what's happened thus far, totally fine to celebrate. But I've become much more transactional in my in my age, um, where I think just because you can be happy about what's happened thus far doesn't mean that you will be happy at all points in the future and that we would hope that people who do love a free society would demand that he maintain that. Now, as for the China issue, that's absolutely real. I mean, he has all sorts of entanglements with China, as does every single other tech oligarch out there. I thought it was humorous to see people say, oh, did you know he has these ties to China? It's like, I do, and they're troublesome. So does literally everybody else, and half the people who were making the claim about troubling ties to China themselves have troubling ties to right, China. Right, like, like Bezos, Bezos, for example. He was a, yeah, a big, you know, he came out and was tweeting about this and then sort of backtracked a little bit. And I'm not saying, you know, Elon Musk is bad because his company does business in China, but I've been very critical of major American corporations who bend to the will of China and basically turn a blind eye to genocide. And if I'm going to criticize Disney and Nike and the NBA and others, I think Tesla has to be on the list, especially if Elon Musk starts doing special favors for the Chinese or lets them put the thumb on the scale when it comes to any of this stuff, particularly when it comes to the freedom of expression among Americans on Twitter. I think that that is at least something that we ought to be paying attention to. And that's why I say be on guard. So it's okay to celebrate, but be on guard. And uh, and that should be going in. That should be going on with whomever you might find a temporary alliance with. And you're right that he does not have a long track record of caring about some of these issues. But everything he said has been pretty good. So that that has to mean something. I mean, uh, being unwilling to defend a culture of free speech, as so many of these powerful people are mm-hmm. unable to do, that's a that's a horrible thing. He at least is doing that bare minimum, but it's an important minimum. Yeah, I agree. And I saw there was a Daily Mail story about Hunter Biden and I guess five million plus dollars of unexplained Joe Biden income, allegedly. And the one thing that I will say is under an Elon Musk Twitter, if, let's say, the New York Post dug into that and found something there, I don't think the New York Post would have the story throttled, banned, you know, disabled in terms of sharing and their Twitter account suspended for days on end, which is exactly what happened, as we all know, in 2020. I don't think that would happen under Elon Musk. That unto itself would be a dramatic and welcome improvement. As you say, Molly, we shall see. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, a colleague here at Fox News. You can read her book, Rigged. You can follow her tweets, at MZ Hemingway. Both of us getting the Elon bump, I think, in terms of follower accounts in the last few days. Molly, always appreciate it. Let's uh, raise a beaker 
together to Elon Musk. Great. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Welcome back to the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So I was driving up to Austin, Texas last night, and it occurred to me how many different modes of transportation I had used over the course of this eight- or nine-day trip from New York to the border and back up to D.C. And just the carbon footprint here is, is quite something. How dare you! So I took the train to New York City last Monday, cabs and Ubers in New York City, then a jet from... New York to Dallas, a monorail at the airport in Dallas, then a smaller jet to Del Rio. Got to Del Rio. We were on pickup trucks. We witnessed a drone. That doesn't really count, but I saw the drone. Then a prop plane, a propeller plane from Del Rio to McAllen, which was the state of Texas airplane with all the technology and the camera, which was really cool. Different type of airplane, though. We get to McAllen. Then we were on gunboats. That was on the Rio Grande down in that valley. That was a new one for me, I admit. I posted on my Instagram, at Guy P. Benson, a photo of myself sort of in this, like, flak jacket slash flotation device with an American flag patch with this gigantic gun that I wouldn't even begin to know how to operate. But it looks kind of badass, so you can check that out, Guy P. Benson on Instagram if you want to see that. But that was out on the boats. Then we drove up from McAllen to Austin in an SUV, kind of pedestrian, back on a jet again to D.C. and Uber at home. That is a lot. I mean, I missed, what, a golf cart, a motorcycle, a rocket ship, but that's about it. Everything else was covered. So you add that all up, and I've got California here coming in just a few days. That is, yes, um, perhaps an outsized carbon footprint. How dare you? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I'll be back home for at least a week, I believe, after L.A. So there's that. We'll take a quick break. It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening. How dare you? You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier on the program today, back in our first hour, we welcome back to the program Mark Thiessen, former presidential speechwriter, Washington Post columnist, and Fox News contributor. A lot of conversation with him about foreign affairs, but also domestic politics. Always a good chat with Mark Thiessen. Here's part of the one that we had today. It is still very concerning and troubling to hear the top officials in that nuclear-armed country musing openly about deploying these types of weapons. How do you see this playing out? Are they just bluffing? Well, I'm a little older than you, so I was in the Cold War, and I remember when Soviet leaders would, would uh, saber-rattle with their nuclear weapons as well. Uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan. We win I think we lose, lost Mark. And we're not we're not we're not uh, going to be intimidated by that. And oh, by the way, we're going to build a, we're going to build missile defense so you can't hit us. Um, so I, I think the reason why you hear Lavrov and Putin saying these things is because Joe Biden has indicated that that worries him. Um, and that that's been a deterrent to him. He, for, for months, he's been telling us we can't do this. We can't do that. All the things we can't do because we don't want to be provocative to the Russians because we don't want World War Three. I mean, he's talked about World War Three. So 
the the Russians are, you know, say, okay, that's a that's a uh, that's an open sore. Let's pour some uh, let's pour some uh, vinegar on it um, and uh, see if we can't get him to back off his support for the Ukrainians. I don't think they're going to nuke us uh, because if they nuke us, we nuke Moscow, and Vladimir Putin doesn't want to go down as the guy who uh, ended up destroying Moscow in in, in world history. Um, and I don't think they want to get into a even a conventional war with NATO because they can't beat Ukraine. So how, how are they going to beat? Yeah, no. How are they going to get beat? Poland? So I, I think it's this is all just designed to get us to stop doing uh, what we should be doing, which is helping the Ukrainians kick their asses. This is the thing, Mark, and I, I think that that's all what you said correctly. You dipped out for just a second, but I got the gist of, of even that part. I'm not sure that the threat here would be the Russians nuking the United States of America or nuking, you know, the Brits or something like that retaliating for our support for Ukraine, what it could be is them at least hinting that they would consider uh, you know, using tactical nuclear weapons, smaller nuclear weapons in Ukraine, maybe as a desperate move, perhaps from a man that some people believe is dying in the person of Vladimir Putin. And then, I mean, that opens up a can of worms in terms of what would the United States and NATO do? Because They are not getting directly involved. They are helping Ukraine, and we are helping Ukraine in all sorts of very important ways. We are not directly involved in the fighting. If the Russians take one of their tactical nukes and, you know, use it in Ukraine somewhere and a bunch of people die, that's not a direct attack on the United States or NATO allies, but it's obviously a massively destabilizing and lethal escalation, and I just don't know what the response would be from the world. Again, I think it is still pretty far-fetched that the Russians do this, but they are talking a lot about it, and it seems like if they're going to do anything to back up that talk, it wouldn't be some you know, ICBM fired at New York. It would be something much smaller blown up in you know, Lviv or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be able to deter that. And uh, I think that it would be, I mean, none of us want to get the U.S. troops directly involved in, in, in a war. But if Russia were to be the first country uh, in the 21st century to use a tactical nuclear weapon in a battle, uh, there would be a lot of pressure for NATO to go in and, and, and finish this war up and, 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 and help the Ukrainians in, in a much more real sense. Um, so I, I, we need some declaratory policy to deter them from that. But but I I just think we have to understand that this is this is not this is not our first rodeo doing this. I mean there's there's something called the Reagan Doctrine, uh, which which you know back if you go back to when Ronald Reagan was first elected in in 1980 became president in 1980, America had just withdrawn from Vietnam. Uh, we were there was no appetite for the United States to go and go and fight wars abroad and send thousands of American troops uh, to fight wars. And what we did was we ended up we ended up providing military assistance. That full interview, myself and Mark Thiessen, available online for free as part of our podcast, which is always no charge to you, always on demand shortly after the show ends around 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Well, I finally had Whataburger in Texas yesterday for the first time. How did it go? How did it compare to, for example, In-N-Out Burger? I put a poll up on Twitter about that. Thousands of responses. The people are speaking. We will reveal those results here in just a moment. Plus... A gas station, I don't even know if I can call it that, but a gas station, the likes of which I have never seen 
everything is bigger in Texas. I'll explain straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Wednesday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are here. Glad to be home, but yesterday was my last day for that stretch in Texas, down at the border, and then heading up to Austin to fly home this morning. And on the drive up to Austin, we stopped for dinner at Whataburger, which is a Texas-based chain, fast food, as you might have gathered from the name. Burgers are their big thing, although I got lots of recommendations. Apparently, people love this like chicken biscuit thing that they do, but only between certain hours, like late night into the morning. So that would not have been available when we were there. We were there at dinner time. I had a cheeseburger, like their basic cheeseburger meal with fries and, of course, a Coke Zero. And I thought it was good. I'm not sure I understood all of the hype around it. But it was good. It was a fast food burger. I liked their fries. I really liked their ketchup. They have their own branded ketchup, including a spicy ketchup, which wasn't too spicy, but had just a little hint of a kick. It was delicious. So I enjoyed that. And I had seen previously fights on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, People from California or the West Coast talking about In-N-Out Burger. And then people from Texas and other places where Whataburger is available saying, no, you guys are crazy. In-N-Out's overrated. Whataburger's where it's at. So on and so forth. So I've had In-N-Out many times. I mean, not many, but I would say a dozen times in my life I've had In-N-Out. And I have a particular point of view on In-N-Out Burger. I wanted to, for the purposes of science, of course... Because In-N-Out is available in Texas. We passed several. I was like, but I've never had Whataburger, so for the purposes of science, I'm going to do a taste test. And I gave my verdict on Twitter, but not before putting up a poll. And this poll has thousands of responses from people. Here's what I wrote. I said, okay, America, I'm in Texas, about to try Whataburger for the first time, headed to California in a few days. If you had to choose which is better, and the options were In-N-Out and Whataburger, and as of, what, a couple hours ago, I think last I checked, there were well over 4,000 votes. And In-N-Out Burger was ahead like 53 to 47 or thereabouts, percentage-wise. But you had thousands of votes for both options. And then tons of comments and people battling it out. My verdict ultimately was this. Whataburger's fries are definitely better, which is not necessarily saying much because In-N-Out fries are terrible. They taste like cardboard. I don't know how they're so bad. How are the fries so bad at In-N-Out Burger? Given how good everything else is, their burgers that double-double, hmm. The double-double from In-N-Out Burger, I don't care. You can tell me it's overrated, and you don't get why people... I'm sorry. The double-double at In-N-Out is a spectacular achievement in fast food. And their shakes are also really good. So I often go, if I go to In-N-Out at all when I'm out west, I will get the burger and sometimes, to really treat myself, a shake... I don't even bother with the fries. And I don't get it whatever animal style. I don't dump a bunch of goop on top of it. The fries suck. 
Let's just be clear. And Whataburger in Texas, their fries were a lot better, especially with that aforementioned spicy ketchup. The burger was fine. I might offend some of you right now. If you're a Whataburger person, just, you know, close your ears or brace yourself. It just kind of reminded me of a Whopper from Burger King. It was just kind of that. And I'm not even sure it was better than a Whopper. And a Whopper can be good. I'm, I'm, I'm not throwing shade. It was a solid option. But to me, I go with the fries at Whataburger. I go with the service. Not to say the service was bad in Texas at all. But the way that they train people at In-N-Out to be extra friendly, kind of Chick-fil-A style, I like that. I like the whole aesthetic at In-N-Out more than the aesthetic at Whataburger. I'm just saying, and I like the burgers more at In-N-Out. And ultimately, at a fast food burger joint, the burger is supreme compared to the fries. So I'm, I'm siding with In-N-Out. And I might have to have some when I'm in California in a few days. It's been a while. And none of this is to say that Whataburger was a bad experience. I just don't get the people who truly believe that In-N-Out is overrated, but Whataburger is amazing. I think it's just, I guess, to each his own. Christine, this got a lot of attention. Have you had either of these chains before? I have had both. Okay. Was my analysis correct, incorrect? What are you thinking? Uh, I love, I actually agree with you. I love the fries at Whataburger. Like, I thought they were some of the best fries I've ever had. Truly, truly loved them. The burger was fine. Um, I don't know if it was, it's probably better than a Whopper, I would say, but it was fine. There's nothing better than an In-N-Out burger. It's just mm-hmm. delicious. But I agree with you. After the first maybe two fries, when they're super hot when you first get them, after that, the fries are terrible at In-N-Out. And it's very and it's shocking. We- it's so weird because they do everything else so well, and they don't have almost anything on their menu. It's like you drive up, and there's seven things total on the menu, including the drinks. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get such a key staple so wrong? I guess their counterpoint would be, we are massively successful. We're not doing it wrong because obviously a lot of other people love our fries. I don't know. I will just say in my many, many comments and DMs that I got, even the in and out people, for the most part, were saying, you're exactly right. The fries aren't good. But the burgers are way better. So that's why the vote was correct. That was the feedback that I got. So if you're a marketing person... At In-N-Out or at Whataburger, just, you know, take all of this with a grain of salt. And quite frankly, In-N-Out, you could use a few more grains of salt on your fries. Maybe a little bit more, uh, a little bit more well done, a little fried extra. That might improve the fry situation at In-N-Out. Yes, Christine, question. So I, too, will be on the West Coast. Um, Which In-N-Out should you and I go to? Well, you know what? Why don't we each plan on going to an In-N-Out at some point over the course of the week and just see if the stars might align and we end up at the same one at the same time. I think that'd be a fun Wait. experiment, and we'll do it that way. No, there's so many. I'm looking at the locations. How, how will I know where you are? I mean, that's the point. It just You'll just have this uh, spidey best friend sense of where to go and when, and we'll just see if that works out, and then when we're both safely no longer in the same state, we can uh, trade notes, unless, of course, we bump into each other. In which case, guess what? Your double-double is on me. If we bump into each other, I will get you a burger next week in California. Now, there was another thing that I tweeted about that got 
a huge amount of engagement, especially from people in Texas, but not only in Texas, because like Whataburger, this chain is available in other states as well. Christine, have you ever been to a Bucky's? I have never been, but um, oh my, I have heard about it. Oh I've, my, I've had people that I know that love it. I have a T-shirt, a Bucky's T-shirt. So does my oh, daughter. You do? Yeah, we uh, we have some gear from there. I've heard all about it. I'm so excited to hear your thoughts, but I've never been. So it's spelled B-U-C dash E-E apostrophe S, Buc-E's. And it's got this logo of, it's like a woodchuck or a chipmunk or something. I think it's actually technically a beaver. And the guys from the state of Texas who were on this road trip, and a big shout-out to Seth, who was so helpful for the entire trip and getting everything set up and granting us and helping us gain access to all this amazing stuff. He was in the car as well. And they were going to stop for gas at a Bucky's, and they were like, oh, boy, wait till you see this place. I never heard of it. And they were kind of describing it to me, and I was like, you guys, this sounds a little bit ridiculous. I don't really get the hype. Then we showed up. And I instantly got the hype. It is this palace of a gas station that had, it looked like 50 pumps. And they said this was a medium-sized Bucky's, not even one of the bigger Bucky's outside of Austin. 50 pumps. And then, you know, there's that convenience store that you have at many gas stations. This thing is the size of a grocery store or like even a smaller Walmart or something. It's huge. They have apparently this reputation for very clean bathrooms, and they literally had a huge sign over the restroom entrance that called the restrooms world famous. (laughs) Here's our world famous restrooms at the gas station. It's like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then they've got, you know, candy and stuff that you would typically maybe get at a gas station convenience store, and then just everything else like people were like oh you've got to get the chopped beef sandwich what they have a whole like deli type setup they have they were selling like a canopy for the beach they had flotation devices they had like cutting boards it was huge i didn't even walk we were sort of in a rush just trying to get up to austin and get to bed for an early morning flight I didn't even traverse the entire store because it would have taken quite a while. It was overwhelming. It was absolutely massive. And I can't even fully describe it. It was like like an arts and crafts store as well, plus maybe like a, a fast food diner type place, plus a gas station, plus an all-purpose convenience store, plus kind of a hardware store, it was it was a lot. And I just posted a photograph of the outside of the Bucky's. I said, I don't even know how to describe what this place is. And many, many people had thoughts. And I guess it's come now to, down to Georgia and down to Florida. It's a bunch of different places. I had never stepped foot in one before. I had never seen one before. And... Uh, you know, I'm not going to call it life-changing, but I have never been in an establishment quite like that. I heard that they kind of tried to make it like a truck stop, but huge. 
and cleaner and nicer, but no trucks allowed. Like 18-wheelers, big rigs, not welcome. This is for families and people in, like, cars, pickup trucks, minivans, SUVs, that's it. So that was my Bucky's experience. And if you've never been to one, you are missing out. It is quite something. And as I said in the teaser, Bucky's is a prime example of everything being bigger in Texas. We have a normal-sized Guy Benson show coming your way Thursday edition tomorrow from Washington, D.C. Should be from the Tony Snow Studios before we're off to L.A. We will talk to you then, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Until that time, have a great night, and thank you for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.